And friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy chapter 9. Uh, we're in a series called Five on Five, where we've been looking at the first five books of the Bible and specifically covering them or aspects of them over five sermons each. Um, today we are in our second sermon in the last book. And so, uh, including today, there are four more weeks in the book of Deuteronomy. Just to give you an overview for the rest of the year, once we finish this series, uh, we do know that a New Testament exists, so we will go uh, to the New Testament and we will camp out the rest of the year in the New Testament. Uh, but today we're in Deuteronomy 9, verses 1 to 8. Our sermon is entitled, A Lesson in Self-Righteousness. And so I invite you, if you're able, please stand with me. Uh, standing is an act of worship. It's the way that we show reverence for God's word as we read and receive it. Deuteronomy chapter 9, I'll be reading verses 1 to 8. You can follow along in your copy of the scriptures or on the slides in front. Verse 1. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go and to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes before, over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you, gonna, are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. Remember, do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. Would you join me in prayer once more? A good and gracious Father, we're, we're thankful for the opportunity uh, to come and gather. Uh, we know that worship is so much more than just hearing a sermon. We know that it's the gathering, the assembly of your people as we pray and we confess and we sing and we greet and we hear updates and we love one another. Uh, but in this portion of the service, uh, would you give to us your spirit to attune our hearts and our ears and our minds to receive what you might speak to us today? Father, I pray that uh, by your spirit, you would preach a far greater sermon uh, than I've prepared. And in that way, Lord, that you would um, speak to the hearts of every single person gathered here this morning. Do this, Lord, not only for our good, which we need, but do it ultimately for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever had the experience where you're driving on the highway, everybody is going at comfortable speed? And then out of nowhere, seemingly out of nowhere, the traffic just kind of slows down 10 miles per hour slower. 
And of course, that's always frustrating. Uh, you're very annoyed and you strain your neck ahead only to see that, of course, there is a state trooper there parked on the side and the shoulder of the road. Now, of course, you know that with the presence of the state trooper, now everyone's going to be driving extra slow, extra carefully. Nobody wants to get pulled over. Nobody wants a ticket. We all know that when you see that state trooper, you press the brakes. But what we forget sometimes when we're only looking out for the state troopers is that there's also that unmarked vehicle, that unmarked car. They don't have sirens on their roof. They have it on the inside of their car. You can't even look inside, usually because the windows are so uh, darkly tinted. They have no indication, no stenciling on the side of the car telling you that they are also state troopers. And so what ends up happening is that because they're hidden out in plain sight, Sometimes you're driving and without people realizing it, they start speeding, passing these unmarked stated troopers. And uh, if you're like me, there's a little bit of vindication and joy when, when you see them getting pulled over. Yeah, they shouldn't be speeding. I mention this only because a very similar spiritual dynamic happens in the life of the Christian. And that's this. Um, when you are only looking out for, when you're only avoiding one type of, of sin, sometimes you forget that there are other sins around and you fall into them. Now, what I'm specifically talking about is unrighteousness and self-righteousness. The way that a lot of Christian discipleship is done, maybe the way you've been trained and taught uh, in the Christian life is that, hey, you should stay away from certain kinds of behavior, certain kinds of sins, obvious blatant things. Don't do bad things. We call that unrighteousness. Stay away from those things. But often what happens is because we're so focused on making sure we stay away from certain behavior that we fall into another trap and that's the trap of self-righteousness. What ends up happening is we become so good at staying away from the unrighteous behavior that we scoff when we look down at the unrighteousness without realizing at the same time now we've fallen into the other sin, which is self-righteousness. And self-righteousness is really just trusting in your own righteousness, trusting in your own performance to give you standing before God. Both are wrong. Both reject God as Savior. Both are sins. And so, dear friends, uh, you may be here today thinking, oh, Christianity, I know what that is. That's a religion of morality, just telling you to stay away from bad things. No, we also must remember the self-righteousness and rejecting God by leaning on and trusting in your own righteousness is equally a sin and equally wrong. So how do believers avoid a self-righteous spirit, a self-righteous attitude, a self-righteous posture where you lean and trust in your own righteousness to save you? Well, here's our point of meditation this morning. Your righteousness merits nothing from God, but your rebellion is met with his grace. Now, we'll Unpack that as we look at our passage. But your righteousness merits nothing from God, but your rebellion is met with his grace. Our passage in Deuteronomy begins much the same way that it began last week in Deuteronomy chapter 1. If you remember last week, we talked about Israel's struggle. And they uh, suffered from something called gospel amnesia, where they were focusing uh, on the wrong things and they were forgetting the right things. In their case, what ended up happening was God had delivered them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. He powerfully worked deliverance. He defeated Pharaoh and his armies. 
He split the Red Sea so they could walk right through it. He provided for them in the wilderness. And yet, as they stood on the cusp of the promised land, ready to enter it, they forgot the right things. They forgot the God of power. They forgot the God of deliverance. And they focused on the wrong things. They focused on themselves. All they, re- all they saw was, were, the, were the size and stature of the enemies. And then they looked at how small they were and they felt overwhelmed. And as a result, they complained, God must hate us. Why would God lead us out of Egypt to die here? These people are so much bigger and greater than us. We'll never be able to defeat them. And as a result, they're, they're paralyzed. Uh, Deuteronomy 1 verse 26, they say this, yet you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. Okay, so this is Deuteronomy 1. Now, eight chapters have gone by. In eight chapters, that means 40 years of Israel's history has gone by. And so we begin our passage in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1, like this. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today. Meaning, once again, they're on the cusp of the promised land. They're on the threshold of entering into what God has been promising. And the question is, has anything really changed? Remember, before, Israel was small. The people were bigger and mightier and stronger than they, and they were afraid. So what's changed now? Has Israel, you know, beefed up over the summer? Did they hit the gym? Did they do the two-a-days? Are they now able to conquer? Well, we read, as Moses continues, to go into dispossessed nations that are still greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim. Not much has changed. Israel is still small. The enemies are still great. And so how in the world are they going to take over the land? And here Moses directs their attention immediately. He's learned his lesson before. So he directs this generation of Israelites' attention to where the first generation's attention should have been, to God. And he assures the people in verse three, he says, know therefore today that he who goes before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Moses directs their attention to say, okay, you're going to go into the land. Now you're right. They are bigger than you. You are smaller than them. But remember that the victory is a victory that belongs to the Lord because he is the consuming fire. He will destroy them. He will lay them to waste. What is Moses doing? Moses is stripping away from Israel, any hope or any reliance or any trust that the victory will be by their might, that they will have accomplished the promise of the land, that they will have done something to contribute to getting the land. And Moses is making it clear, listen, it has nothing to do with you. This is something that God is doing. This is a work God is doing for you. This is not a a self-help process. It's a God-help process. Now, it's interesting because how does God command Israel to go about and do this? Well, it's interesting because this is what he says. He doesn't say, I'm giving you the land and then snap his fingers, have Israel magically transport to the other side of the Jordan and have all the enemies disappear. Because that would clearly show that it was all up to God. But what does he do? He says, I'm going to give you the victory. I'm going to destroy them. But you still need to band together, form your army, march into the land and wage war. You still, you know, God has guaranteed the victory, but Israel still has their responsibility. But the problem is, unless Israel is careful, 
when they start marching, when they start, you know, swinging their swords, they're going to get the wrong idea. They're going to think that somehow they contributed to the victory. They're going to swing their sword, see the people fall, and then look at their biceps and say, oh, well, you know, I guess I'm pretty good at this. They're going to want to take credit for the work God accomplished. And so Moses warns them. He warns them. Now, right there, we can just pause. Isn't that the reality of the human heart? We are so prone to want to take credit wherever credit can be taken. Now, some of you I know are very humble people. You don't want to be in the spotlight. You don't want to draw public attention to yourself. And you're saying, oh, no, 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 that, that's not me at all. But no, no, deep down inside, all of us in some way, don't we want to believe that um, the contribution we made, as little as it is, that it mattered? Don't we want to believe that our efforts count for something? But the problem with thinking that way spiritually is this. When we try and contribute to the work that God has promised to do, we nullify his grace. By creating a platform by which we try to stand and, and cling to our own righteousness, we, we cheapen his grace. You know, in college, I was in a class that was so small, it was just me and my professor. It had its challenges. I could never skip. I could never fall asleep. But it had its perks. And the greatest perk is that before my final exam, she told me, Andrew, no matter how you do, I'm going to give you an A. I'm going to give you an A. Now, of course, the only responsibility I had is that I had to show up. I, ha I had to be there for her to give me the A. Now, telling you this and, and you knowing that, how would you feel if you overheard me downstairs boasting about my intellectual prowess and my disciplined work ethic because I got an A on this exam? You would scoff because the whole notion would be foolish. And I could say, well, technically I contributed. You know how hard it was to show up? <laughs> Don't you know that I had to be there? Now, intuitively, you just understand that to hear something like that is problematic. You know, why would I want to show or prove or, or, or let you know that in some way I, I contributed? Well, it's because I would want to elevate myself a little higher. But in elevating myself a little higher, what I would be doing is diminishing the grace of that professor who made this offer that she didn't have to, who gave this promise that I didn't deserve. You see, that's the natural bent of the human heart. We want to elevate ourselves higher, but in doing so, we diminish the sheer magnitude of the grace of God. That what he does, he doesn't do in response to us. What he does, he does because he desires to. And when we try to cling to something, something other than God, something that is our righteousness, what we in effect do is nullify the grace of God. Moses knew this. He knew this would be Israel's temptation. He knew that they would enter the promised land, that they would get the victory, and then they would think to themselves, wow, we are really great, aren't we? And so Moses does something that is much to our favor, you know, sometimes reading the Bible, it can be a little difficult to understand the main point. Moses makes the main point of Deuteronomy 9 super, super clear. You don't need to know Hebrew. You don't need to be a theologian. You don't need to know the ancient culture and context. You just need to have eyes to read. Three times Moses drills home this point so you won't miss it. 
Verse four, he says it the first time. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. Don't say it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess his land. Second, in verse five, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. And just in case you missed it, a third time, verse six, know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. And then the cherry on top, you're actually a stubborn people. Three times in a row, Moses drills home the point. Why? Because if Israel were ever to make the mistake of believing it was their righteousness that made them deserve the land, they would nullify the grace of God. And the big problem there, of course, is that by believing your righteousness contributes to what God so graciously gives, it inflates your view of yourself and it deflates the magnitude of God's grace. You are overestimating yourself and you are underestimating God. You know, if Israel ever thought that there was something about them that was impressive or was lovable before God, they would actually then miss his heart. If Israel thought that it was something about them or something that they did or something that they mustered, and that's why God gave them the land, they would actually misunderstand the gracious heart of God. Let me just pause there for a second and challenge you like this. That might be the case for some of you in this room today. I don't know your spiritual background. I don't know your church background. I don't know if you grew up in church. Maybe you've been in church your whole life. Maybe this is your first time here. But when you think of God, you think of a relationship with God, what is that based on? I, I, I think maybe for those who've been churched, when you come to believe that God's view of you, God's acceptance of you, God's approval of you, God's favor over you, is tied to some kind of contribution, something about you that you've made, you miss the heart of God, and in turn, religion, Christianity, becomes really exhausting, really tiring, really joyless, really enslaving. You know how hard it is to work daily to make sure God likes me? I think some of you, that's maybe the way you've been operating with God you look to various things in your life to be your righteousness and you think, you know, maybe by this, God will accept me. Or, or maybe if I work harder at this, God will respect me. Maybe you think, you know, if, if I make sure to, to do X, Y, and Z, if I become X, Y, and Z, then, then maybe God will love me. And some of you are like, oh, maybe he won't love me because I know who I am, but maybe if I do this, he'll like me. Maybe he'll put up with me. And the thinking at all that somehow some contribution within you determines how God loves you and the grace he gives to you, you end up missing the depth, the grace that he has for you. Think about it like this. Let's say you had a personal friend, a very close friend of yours, and they underwent an experience where they ended up in a dire financial situation. Uh, as a result, they literally did not know if they could eat the next day. 
And so deeply moved, deeply caring for this person, you make a decision that as long as it's uh, financially possible for you, you are going to do your best to to buy them uh, lunch every single day. As long as you're able, you're going to make that commitment because this person doesn't know where they're going to get their next meal. But you notice this pattern that every single time you take them out to lunch or you DoorDash them, you send them a lunch, right? They always uh, hand you a dime or they Venmo you 10 cents. Now, you don't think much of it, okay, whatever, but after a few weeks of this, you begin to get curious. And so you ask them, why, why are you doing this? And they respond to you, so that you'll buy me lunch again. Wouldn't that greatly sadden your heart? Because by giving you, sending you 10 cents a dime, they're not only misunderstanding your heart, misunderstanding your desire to care and love them, but they're turning your compassion into a commodity that they can earn, that they can buy, that they can win over. You see, when you think that God does things in your life because of your righteousness, not only does that create a false sense of security in yourself, but it distracts you from seeing and being overwhelmed by the abundant grace of God. You're turning his grace into a commodity. And in the end, this is destructive and dangerous because it inflates a view of yourself and it deflates your view of God. Now, what are these various righteousness that we cling to, that we hold to? Now, on the one hand, uh, it can often be our spiritual performance. And for many of you, uh, this is how you relate to God. The righteousness that you try to bring forth to him is um, how obedient you've been, how faithful you've been, how sacrificial you've been, how successful you've been at avoiding doing certain things, things like this. And so then you assume what you assume that the presence of your good deeds and the absence of your bad deeds are what gain God's favor. You think, well, if I can uh, keep myself unstained from this, if I can stay on this path and God must love me, God must care for me, God must look upon me and be at least a little moved. Now that's some of you, others of you, your righteousness is not spiritual at all. The thing you cling to is not spiritual at all. And yet you make it spiritual. When the thing that you cling to becomes that which you think uh, is the reason God should look upon you in a certain way. In this case, your righteousness are those things that you feel, um, you believe make you feel uh, significant or worthy or impressive. These are the things that we look to to give us an identity or a validation or a justification. And you hope by having this or becoming this, then God has to look at me and, and at least be impressed. And, and it varies. For some of you, that may be on being a great parent. That can be your righteousness. Some of you, have your righteousness in the success of your children, how hard they study, how well-adjusted they are, what choices they make in life. And so their performance becomes your performance and how they do is how justified, righteous you feel. And for others of you who grew up maybe under that system said, I'll, I'll do nothing like that. And so your righteousness isn't on how successful your kids are. Your righteousness is on how happy your kids are. If they're happy, if they like me, then 
I'm a good parent. Then I have a righteousness to cling to. Some of you, it's none of that. You don't have kids. It's your accomplishments. It's your accolades. The school that you attended to, that's your righteousness. The sports you excel in, the promotion you receive, the company you work for, the prestige you enjoy, this becomes my righteousness by which I believe I'm impressive before God and before others. For some of you, it has nothing to do with that. It is based on the manner of your lifestyle. You're busy all the time. So my productivity is my righteousness. You're needed all the time. So your usefulness is your righteousness. You're surrounded by friends all the time. Well, your popularity is your righteousness. Your righteousness is whatever you believe makes you important and valuable and seen by God so that he might be impressed with you, so that he might be drawn to you. But when Moses tells Israel that it wasn't because of your righteousness that God gave you the land, it wasn't because of your righteousness that God was gracious and loved you, you must remember the same truth. It was never anything that you brought to the table. It's never been about who you've become or what you've done that draws out God's grace. And that's frustrating news for those of you who are doing a really good job at keeping the rules or are really successful in life because you've built your whole platform on understanding that God loves you or God accepts you or God is impressed with you because of your performance. And some of you have wanted to turn away from Christianity because of the very opposite of that. You know you've done bad, but because you still operate in this system, you go, well, there's nothing I can break. And so forget that. I want nothing to do with him. But the gospel comes right in the middle and it gives a freeing, liberating, joyful, beautiful news that says this, God doesn't give grace to the righteous. Your righteousness merits nothing from God. But God is the kind of God who gives grace to the rebellious, to the undeserving, to the disqualified. You see, God's grace for Israel wasn't in response to their righteousness. They had no righteousness. What did God give his grace in response to? We actually read it in verse 7. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place you have been rebellious against the Lord. See, Moses here is talking about when Israel left Egypt and then they um, had the whole golden calf incident. Right? They made a golden calf, they created an idol, and then they began worshiping it. And they rebelled against God. They forgot all of his goodness, grace, and mercy. <laughs> Moses is saying, you keep saying, oh, it's by my righteousness. What righteousness do you have? Don't forget all you had before God was your rebellion, was your sin. Verse 8, he says, even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. And Moses is saying, listen, God's grace to you isn't in response to the righteousness that you provided. God's grace came to you when you provoked his wrath, you incited his anger, and you rebelled against him. And yet God, because he is so kind and gracious, gave you that which you didn't deserve. In fact, he gave you that which you disqualified yourself from. And so what happens in the history of Israel is God relents from dealing with Israel. 
But his relenting doesn't mean he forgot or he ignored. Rather, God stored his wrath and his anger for another time. But only for a time. Because hundreds of years later, God sent forth his son, Jesus. And when Jesus came into the world, the cup of God's wrath was opened and the furnace doors of his anger was flung open. And the wrath and the anger against rebellious sin that Israel was guilty of and that you and I are guilty of, it came rushing down, but not upon you and me. Upon Jesus Christ. You see, it's easy to judge Israel for their sin. Their sin of claiming a righteousness that was not their own. But dear friends, just take one look inward. And all the other things that we're clinging to, the righteousness that we're clinging to, the justification we're cl- that we're clinging to, the, to the sources of our significance and worth and identity that we're clinging to, that we, make, that we think makes us something before God all those rebellious ways in which we've rejected God and we said, I'll take care of this. I'll contribute something. And being guilty of our own rebellious sin, God has sent forth Jesus. Jesus, the, the only one in whom there was no rebellion found, the only one in whom there was perfect righteousness found. Coming and standing in the place of guilty, rebellious sinners, dying the death we should have died so that grace and mercy might not trickle down upon your head, but be lavishly poured out. Dear friends, our good works of righteousness, our contributions, none of this is ever enough, but it's not just enough. It's not just not enough in terms of quantity. It's the wrong currency. It's not your righteousness the Lord is looking for. It's Christ's righteousness. Apostle Paul gives us this wonderful promise in Titus chapter 3, in the glimpse of the gospel, when he says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. You see, here's what happens in your life. When you come face to face, when you're confronted with the gospel of Jesus and it penetrates your heart, you're finally able to admit that your righteousness merits nothing, right? You're you're holding onto it. You're gripping onto it just in case I need to present this before God. The gospel allows you to let that go and rest Self-righteousness is like a crutch, but what you're leaning on in order to try to stand before God. And the gospel is like a wheelchair of grace so that you can let go and fall and rest in what God has provided for you. And until you understand, until you receive, until you embrace the grace and mercy of God given to you freely, you will maintain a hold on your own self-righteousness. But the gospel is freedom. The gospel is rest. The gospel is joy. 
and as you experience this, your heart, the lyric of your heart changes. You no longer say, it is because of my righteousness to the tune of the Israelites. But you begin to respond, it is because of his grace to the melody of the gospel. Trust, not in your righteousness, but in the grace of God that comes and meets you in your rebellion and your sin. Let's pray.